0: What's in a mystery that makes it so compelling? Is it just an inability to leave well enough alone? We always have to know, don't we? Many people fill their days trying to avoid the unknown. But it's always going to be there, nagging your thoughts with worry and obsession. The unknown drags us deeper into itself like like a black hole until we fall into its center. And then the unknown, well, becomes known. Except, what happens when it doesn't? What happens if the unknown remains a mystery? What if that black hole just swallows us, and there really is nothing but darkness on the other side? Sometimes that's just too much for people to process. As we will see in this week's podcast, some mysteries invite speculation like a porch lamp invites moths. Just like an insect, we can't begin to help what we're doing. We simply are drawn to answering those questions that haunt us. We just can't help but fill in the gaps of a story. The gaps in the story I'm about to tell you involve the still unanswered question of what compelled a polite, besuited hijacker to ransom a Boeing 727 for two hundred thousand dollars. And what exactly happened to this unidentified hijacker after his infamous jump? Join us for the next hour as we contemplate the confounding. We'll try to gain a little more understanding, but There are no easy answers here. This is imperfect clarity. It's just another day on the job for Dan Cooper. He puts on his suit just like anyone else, one leg at a time. But Dan has no regular nine-to-five office job. He's not your average Joe by any means. Dan Cooper is a crack flying ace in the Royal Canadian Air Force. The suit he puts on is usually a flight suit, but this morning, it's a space suit. Dan Cooper, you see, is a hero. He has saved Canada and indeed the whole world from terrorist threats, communist plots, evil scientists and all manner of madmen since 1954. Today, Dan Cooper will be flying once again for the safety of Canada and all of planet Earth. On this mission, Dan will be flying his rocket ship to the Martian moon Deimos to ward off an otherworldly threat. Okay. So you've probably figured out by now that Dan Cooper is a fictional character. He is the creation of Franco-Belgian artist Albert Weinberg. Albert came up with Dan Cooper for 1010 Magazine. Uh, He was a rebuttal for the Buck Danny series, which was published by their rival, Spirou. The story of heroic Dan Cooper, Canadian flying ace, is truly a fascinating and inspiring foray into the art of Albert Weinberg. It's not this Dan Cooper, however, that I'm going to be telling you about today. Rather, I'm going to tell you a story about a man who, most likely, was not named Dan at all. He most likely stole the name Dan Cooper from the comics that he read in his childhood in the 50s. He may or may not have been Canadian, and he may or may not have been a pilot. We will likely never know these things for sure. For some, he was a hero, for others, he was a force of evil, no matter how polite he was described as being. Regardless, we can be relatively sure that his name was not Dan Cooper, nor even the nom de guerre with which he has been christened by the public. D. B. Cooper. Our tale begins in Portland, Oregon. It's a fairly chilly November afternoon, the day before Thanksgiving. November 24th, 1971. Northwest Orient flight number 305 takes to the air at 2.50 p.m. Pacific time. The fuselage of this Boeing 727 is relatively empty, especially considering the expectation that we would have today for such a flight. Especially a flight scheduled the day before Thanksgiving, and traveling from one major metropolis to another. The passenger seats on NWO flight 305 were perhaps about a third filled. One of these seats was occupied by a hijacker. The precise seat that he sat in is somewhat in dispute, because back then airlines didn't assign seat numbers with the tickets but it was in the vicinity of seat 18C. He had purchased a one-way ticket from Portland to Seattle for $20 even. He had a plan to make that 20 bucks back. Plus a whole lot more. The occupation and even as I've said the real name of the hijacker has been eluding the FBI for decades now. But his attire on that faithful November day would suggest that he was a professional man. He wore a black suit and tie and a white shirt. He was well-groomed, very put-together, and according to the testimony of those with whom he interacted during his crime, he was very polite. He was clean-shaven, had combed hair, and even sported a mother-of-pearl tie clip, Even his handwriting was neat, as flight attendant Florence Schaffner was soon to find out. Quick aside here, folks, I think I at times pronounced Miss Florence's name both Schaffner and Schaffner. I'm not sure which one it's supposed to be. I'm not very good with names. And I'm not going to re-record this. If you're listening, Florence, sorry. Anyway, back to the show. (music) As she made her rounds delivering drinks and peanuts, etc., she was handed a small note by the clean cut businessman in the black suit. She smiled politely and stashed the note in her purse without giving it so much as a glance. Florence was an attractive twenty three year old woman. She probably had received many notes from lonely businessmen in the course of her job. This note, however, was different, as the businessman promptly let her know. He said something along the lines of, "'Miss, you're going to want to read that note, please. "'It's important.' I'm sure Miss Schaffner was a bit perplexed, but she did as instructed and unfolded the paper the man had just handed her and neatly printed all caps it read, "'I'm hijacking this plane. Cooperate and nobody gets hurt. "'I have a bomb in my briefcase.'" The exact wording of the note is unknown. Miss Schaffner would only later recall the gist of the message and wisely the hijacker would reclaim the note itself after the now frightened flight attendant read the neatly printed but threatening message the alleged Mr Cooper asked her to take the empty seat beside him Miss Schaffner in a brave and very wise move requested that she be allowed to see the bomb she needed to confirm the danger Mr. Cooper claimed to hold over the plane. The mysterious hijacker obliged her. He opened his attaché just enough to reveal eight red cylinders attached by various wires to a larger cylinder. There is a prevailing notion today that this bomb was actually a fake. The red cylinders were most likely road flares, and the large, quote, battery cylinder was probably inoperative. However, Miss Schaffner certainly thought it was the real McCoy and acted accordingly. She listened intently as the besuited bomber detailed his demands. She returned to her duties as usual so as not to draw undue attention to the situation. When she made her way back up to the cockpit of the aircraft, She informed the flight crew of the man and his bomb. The flight's pilot, William Scott, contacted the Seattle-Tacoma Air Traffic Control and in turn informed the authorities of the hijacking. The president of Northwest Orient Airlines, Donald Nairup, authorized the flight crew to cooperate with the hijacker in every way and to tell him that he would be given anything he demanded. The demands that this hijacker made weren't quite what was expected, however. To explain this, we're going to need to examine the political scene of the times just a bit. It's 1971, and the United States is in the midst of the Cold War. Relations with the USSR and other communist states are tense, to say the least. And there has been a lot of hubbub over the years about the communist threat just south of the U.S. coast, Cuba. You see, the clash of ideologies and lifestyles that had swept the U.S. in the 1960s had brought with it more than free-loving hippies and groovy, psychedelic music. There was, for whatever reason, a large number of U.S. citizens that sympathized with Fidel Castro. Maybe they wanted to rebel against the norm, or to piss off their parents. Maybe they wanted to fight for a cause they truly believed in and to overthrow the capitalists. Well, whatever the justification, this boom in Castro supporters within the states corresponded with a boom in crime. During the mid-to-late 1960s, there was a rash of these, quote, freedom fighters, who thought it a grand idea to hijack a plane and fly it to Cuba. Of course, upon landing in Cuba, the politically motivated hijackers were rarely, if ever, greeted with open arms. The nightmarish conditions these people endured in their political skyjackings, as they were called, is beside the point of this story, but it is really a fascinating tale. If you're interested in learning more about it, I recommend the book Hijack by Anthony Bryant. And while you're at it, do also check out a book by Brandon Croner, author of The Skies Belong to Us which is a thought-provoking look at how the rash of skyjackings in this period put the U.S. on the slippery slope towards the intensive security measures we see in the airports today. folks, it's me again with another aside. I feel the need to make it clear here that these guys are not in any way paying me to mention their books. Um, This isn't like an ad placement. They're actually just really good books that I came across in my research for this um, topic. So... Yeah, not getting paid for that. Definitely check the books out, though. Okay, back to the show. According to Croner, there were more than 130 U.S. airliner hijackings from 1968 to 1972. Many of these were politically motivated. So, when D.B. Cooper told the young flight attendant, Miss Schaffner, that he was hijacking their plane, it was assumed that he would want to fly the craft to Cuba. This was not the case, however... Dan Cooper demanded something a bit less idealistic, a bit simpler. He asked for cash and parachutes. The way he asked for the money has led some to conjecture that he was Canadian. He asked for $200,000 in negotiable American currency. Cooper spoke English, and he had no apparent accent. This fact, coupled with the casual use of dollars in reference to the cash, leads investigators to assume that he was either American or Canadian. And his use of the odd phrase, negotiable American currency, that kind of lends credence to the theory that the dollars that D.B. Cooper was used to spending were Canadian dollars. There's one more thing that we can infer from the words he used here. He had planned this hijacking to some degree. This was no crime committed on a whim or in a moment of passion. He demanded four parachutes, two primary chutes and two reserve chutes. It is assumed that he asked for four in order to make the impression that he was going to take a hostage with him. This would prevent the FBI from procuring a fake or inoperable parachute for him to use. He also demanded a refueling truck to be waiting for them at the Seattle airport. Don Nyrup, the president of Northwest Orient Airlines, agreed to Dan Cooper's demands perhaps even with a sigh of relief that he wouldn't have to be dealing with some politically motivated nutjob who was willing to die for a cause. This guy just wanted money. A simple, understandable motivation. The FBI worked for nearly two hours at gathering the money and the parachutes which they would give Cooper. While they did so, NWO Flight 305 circled the Puget Sound. Finally, At about half past 5 p.m. Pacific time, Tina Mucklow, the flight attendant who had taken over the role of liaison between Mr. Cooper and the cockpit, informed him that the money and the chutes had been acquired. The aircraft soon touched down at the Seattle Tacoma Airport and further instructions were given to the flight crew. D.B. Cooper ordered Scott, the pilot, to taxi the aircraft to an isolated part of the apron. That's the area where planes are loaded and unloaded, refueled, etc. He also demanded that all the window shades on the craft be lowered so as to prevent the police from attempting to snipe him, even though the area where they parked the plane was not particularly conducive to such an attempt, and it was about an hour after sunset, and therefore a bit too dark. Once the shades were drawn, Al Lee, the head of operations for Northwest Orient's Seattle branch, approached the plane with Cooper's money and parachutes. He wore plain clothes so as not to be misidentified as a police officer. He handed the items off to Mucklow by way of the aft stairs. These stairs play a pretty prominent role in this story, as we shall soon see. They are not something that you see on an aircraft very often these days, especially on commercial flights. So, a moment to describe what I'm talking about here, I feel, would not be amiss. They are similar to the stairs that commonly come down from the side of the plane, only they descend from the tail of the ship. It's the sort of thing you may be familiar with if you've seen your share of war movies, or of course if you've actually served in the military. It's a great design for conveniently loading and unloading people, or even more efficient for moving around equipment. However, it's a design that's not used today on airliners, mainly due to the events that we're discussing now. If you're still totally lost on what I'm talking about here, Google some images of aft stairs for a Boeing 727, because this picture will be pretty useful to keep in mind later on in the story. After the money and the parachutes were delivered to Dan Cooper, he ordered that everyone be evacuated from the plane, with the exception of the pilot, the co-pilot, Mrs. Mucklow, his liaison, the flight engineer, and, of course, himself. The pilot just told all the passengers that they were experiencing a mechanical failure and that they would not be able to continue the flight. Once this was accomplished, the refueling truck was dispatched to gas up the plane. Cooper did become a bit suspicious when this truck actually did experience mechanical problems and was unable to complete the work. He kept his cool, however, and waited patiently as the second truck came in place of the malfunctioning one. He continued to remain calm when this second truck ran dry, and a third had to be dispatched to finish refueling the aircraft. In fact, according to Miss Mucklow, D.B. Cooper remained calm during the entirety of the hijacking. He was always polite, always even-tempered, and even offered niceties to the crew such as offering to buy them all dinner or offering them cigarettes. This should not obscure the fact that what DB Cooper was doing was a crime though. He did cause lasting harm to people, not to mention the $200,000 blow to Northwest Orient Airlines finances. In 2019 money, that's about one and a quarter million dollars. Miss Mucklow She was severely traumatized by the incident. After it was all over, she became intensely paranoid. She lost her job and eventually joined a convent as a nun, where she remained for years afterwards, attempting to find some healing. (laughs) The polite demeanor, as well as the clean-cut business attire, certainly adds to the mysterious persona that is D.B. Cooper. Ralph Himmelsbach, the original lead investigator for the FBI on Norjak, that's the code name that the FBI gave to the D.B. Cooper investigation, it's short for Northwest Orient Hijacking. He said that Cooper was a rotten, sleazy crook. But this has not stopped Cooper from becoming something of a pop icon over the years. His exploits have infiltrated American culture through music, literature, film, and even such festivities as Cooper Day celebrations, which are held in parts of Oregon and Washington. The image of a man wearing the odd combination of a business suit and a parachute has come to be a symbol for mavericks, outlaws, and daredevils. Cooper-like characters and storylines have appeared in a long list of TV shows and movies. More disturbing, however, are the Cooper-like characters who have attempted copycat crimes. Two of these copycat hijackings, one perpetrated by a Rob Hetty and another by Frank Sibley, both in 1972, directly led to alterations in the Boeing 727 which prevented the aft stairs from being lowered in flight and which added a peephole in the cockpit door, allowing the flight crew to see into the cabin of the aircraft with the cockpit door shut. Even more extensive changes to air travel were to follow. Many attribute the increase in airport security and subsequent intrusion in travelers privacy to the Cooper case and the copycat cases that followed. What people had begun to copy and what makes this crime truly unique was the end game of Cooper's plan, the jump. I'd like to take a moment to thank our generous sponsors, and that would be you, our listeners. Through your support on Patreon, we can keep this show up and going. If you would like to make a donation, go to our Patreon page, you can contribute as little as a dollar each month. In return, we'll read your name at the end of each podcast episode, and we may even send you some cool stuff, like a t-shirt or a bumper sticker with our logo on it. If giving money isn't in the cards for you right now, that's totally cool. Just go and subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more than you would think. By giving us a good rating, we can rise through the ranks and the algorithm will like us more. Because you guys like us more. If you like us, then tell the algorithm and they'll get other people to like us too. So remember to subscribe and rate wherever you're getting your podcasts. And if you got a few extra bucks, visit our Patreon page. Thank you so much. Y'all are my favorite people in the world. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, back to the show. After the plane was fueled up, he instructed the pilot on their flight path. He told them he wanted to fly to Mexico with a ceiling of 10,000 feet at the slowest possible airspeed the craft could fly without stalling and with the flaps at 15 degrees. There was some discussion about the safety of taking off with the aft stairs lowered as Cooper had demanded and more discussion about an additional refueling stop due to the restraints that Cooper placed on airspeed and elevation. But Cooper agreed to these amendments with very little argument. As it turns out he never intended to fly all the way to Mexico and he knew that he could lower the aft stairs while in flight. This last detail is interesting because this fact about the stairs was not public knowledge. Even the pilots weren't aware of this. At 7.40 p.m. the plane took off and began its flight south towards their refueling stop in Reno. After they were in the air, Cooper told Mucklow to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit. As she made her way to the front of the plane, she saw Cooper tying something around his waist. It was later discovered that Cooper had cut several cords from one of the parachutes he was given and used these to tie the money in a bundle to himself. After the 727 left the runway, two F-106 fighter jets were scrambled from McCord Air Force Base to follow the airliner. They put a priority on staying above or below the 727 so as to stay out of Cooper's line of sight. Unfortunately, they failed to gain an advantageous line of sight with the 727 themselves. In total, five different military aircrafts would attempt to tail the hijacked Boeing, but none of these were able to see what happened next. The defining moment of this story. It was a jump that would go down in history. At about 8 p.m., the flight crew saw a red light appear on their instrument panel warning that the aft stairs had been deployed. Then, at 8.13, the pilot, William Scott, had to adjust the plane's flight to correct for a sudden upward movement of the tail. When the plane landed in Reno, it was searched by armed FBI agents, and no trace of D.B. Cooper was found beyond the discarded parachutes and a black clip-on tie that he had left in the seat of the plane. Subsequently... It was concluded that Cooper had strapped on a parachute, tied the money to his waist, lowered the aft stairs, and jumped from the plane into a rainstorm at 10,000 feet while the plane was traveling at approximately 175 miles an hour and the air temperature was around 15 degrees Fahrenheit. This mystery is all about who Dan Cooper really was and what the hell happened to him after he leapt from that plane? An intensive investigation immediately followed the flight's landing in Reno. A search area was identified using the assumed time of the jump and the flight path of the plane. The projected jump area extends from just north of Lake Merwin to just east of La Center. Although there has been some question as to the flight path and presumed jump time, The radar that was used to track Cooper's flight was top of the line for the time. It was called the SAGE radar and was used to track Russian bombers and other threats to American security during the Cold War. Because of this, the FBI says there is no reason to assume that they would get the flight path wrong. Also, experiments have been conducted in which weights approximating that of Cooper and his gear and the money were pushed out of the back of the same type of plane traveling at the same speed and height. The upward movement of the tail was identical to that reported by William Scott, and therefore confirmed the presumed jump time of about 8.13 p.m. Although this information can be assumed to be accurate, and the area extrapolated from this data was thoroughly searched multiple times, including a dredging of Columbia River in 1974 by the Army Corps of Engineers, and a combing of the bottom of Lake Merwin with a submarine by a marine salvage firm called Electronics Exploration Company, no body has ever been discovered, nor any of the gear that Cooper brought with him. In 1980, an eight-year-old boy named Brian Ingram Discovered a bundle of money on the banks of the Columbia River while on vacation with his family. The serial numbers on this money matched those of some of the bills that had been given to Cooper. There were three packets total two which contained one hundred twenty dollar bills, and a third which contained ninety. This was only a small portion of the money that Cooper had made off with, about fifty eight hundred of the two hundred thousand dollars. But it was the most valuable clue that anyone had yet found. The money was severely degraded. The nature of this degradation suggested to experts that the money had been deposited by the natural motion of the river water. However, geological evidence, namely the layers of sand and clay in which the money was found, suggested that the money made its way to the spot where Brian found it well after the river was dredged in 1974. This conclusion has been challenged, however, and additional evidence, namely the amount of deterioration on the rubber bands binding the money together, suggests that the money would have to have been buried within a year or so of Cooper's jump. In the end, no definitive conclusions as to the identity or whereabouts of Dan Cooper could be gleaned from the rotten bundles of 20s. Still, Brian Ingram was able to glean a nice payoff for his discovery. He auctioned off 15 of the bills in 2008 for $37,000. As of 2019, none of the remaining 9710 bills that were given to Cooper have been found. The serial number on these bills remain available to the public. Perhaps if you find a stash of old cash hidden in a wall, or buried in a yard somewhere, it would be wise to check these serial numbers and see if you have just found some Cooper cash. There have been some items found in the wilderness covering the proposed landing area for Dan Cooper's famous jump. Most of these have turned out to be red herrings. Some bits of parachute material have been found but they were conclusively ruled out as not being from the gear Cooper had used. There was a metal plate with instructions for lowering the aft stairs of a Boeing 727 found in the area, and this has been assumed to have come from Cooper's flight. This, however, hasn't yielded any useful information for identifying the hijacker or locating the money or a body. One reason for the lack of evidence found in this case is the terrain which Cooper jumped into. This is indeed wild country. The northern section of the search area, the portion nearest Lake Merwin, is very rugged and mountainous. It is isolated and heavily forested. The town's nearest Lake Merwin, Amboy, Washington, which is about five miles from the lake, had a population of under 2,000 people in 2019. The town nearest the southernmost end of the search area, La Center, Washington, had a population of just over 3,000 in 2019. The county that includes both of these cities, Clark County, had a population density in 2019 of 789 people per square mile. Now this includes both of the above-mentioned towns as well as the other 25 cities and townships in the county. If you were to look at a map of this area, you'd see one major road, which is Lewis River Road, that's not even a state highway, and also a small spattering of back roads on the southwestern region of the search area. All of this is surrounded and covered with a dense woodland. Couple this with the rugged peaks and valleys and then throw the relative proximity to Mount St. Helens into the mix and it becomes pretty understandable why it has been such a hard fight to find anything related to D.B. Cooper in such a place. Even if this geography inhibits locating physical evidence, it does lend itself to some useful theories on the identity of our snazzy, suit-wearing parachutist. According to Miss Schaffner, Cooper seemed to be familiar with the area over which they were flying, he commented on flying over a couple of landmarks, including Tacoma, Washington, and McCord Air Force Base. This suggests that Cooper was not only familiar with the geography of the area and chose the jump location carefully, but that he was also used to identifying landmarks while in flight, a skill he no doubt used to time his jump from the plane. Some also assumed that if he did plan on such a remote area to land, he may have planned the outfit he wore as well. The idea here is that upon landing he would have to hitchhike back to civilization. It would be far easier to get a ride if he was wearing a suit as opposed to wearing a skydiving jumpsuit. This is also likely the reason he chose November 24th as the day on which he would execute his plans that day being the beginning of a long weekend. He would need as much time as possible to hike to a road, catch a ride, and make it back to work. By wearing a suit, he could just stroll right into work at the end of his adventure. This, however, seems to me like a bit of a flimsy theory upon close examination. I mean, I think I would notice if a colleague especially someone who was usually well-dressed, came into work after jumping out of a plane and hiking through the woods, not to mention wearing the same suit from Wednesday all the way till Monday. Still, the assumption that Cooper worked in a job in which he was expected to wear a suit and tie is one of the most commonly cited theories about his identity. The tie itself is a matter of great significance to many Cooper investigators. One group of investigators, the Citizen Sleuths, conducted a thorough forensic examination of the tie, calling it one of the most important pieces of evidence in this case. In fact, there is precious little physical evidence in the case, and it was fortunate for those trying to solve the mystery of D.B. Cooper's identity that he left the tie behind as the Citizen Sleuths stated on their website, citizensleuths.com. In the entire Cooper case, there are only two real pieces of useful physical evidence currently available, the black tie and the ransom money found on Tina Barr. Okay, quick aside. Pause the quote. I didn't mention earlier uh, that Tina Barr is the spot on the Columbia River where Brian Ingram had found the money in 1980 when he was... Uh, camping with his family. Okay, back to the show. While the money points to what happened after Cooper jumped, it is only the tie that points to where he came from and the life he led. Of all the possible things for him to leave on the plane, the tie was incredibly fortunate for this investigation. A tie is one of the only articles of clothing that isn't washed on a regular basis. Their forensic analysis was able to extract DNA from the tie, but there is no way to verify that the sample actually came from the hijacker. They were also able to identify several interesting materials on the tie. These included unalloyed titanium, as well as rare earth minerals such as cerium and strontium sulfide. The only places that such minerals would have had an opportunity to embed themselves in the fabric of the tie were metal or chemical manufacturing factories and salvage companies. Perhaps Cooper was a manager or engineer at one such facility. Granted, this is still only important assuming that he wore the suit to work. Would it not have been possible that Cooper acquired the tie the day of the hijacking? The specific type of tie he wore wasn't sold new anymore. Its particular line had been discontinued over a year prior. However, he certainly could have bought the tie at a thrift store, or simply stolen it. We know he obviously had no moral qualms about thievery. (laughs) So, D.B. Cooper as a businessman employed at a metal fabrication factory is a popular theory, but it is hardly proven. What other theories on the possible identity of the bomb wielding maverick have been proposed over the years? This list is insanely long. Since 1971, the FBI has processed more than a thousand, quote, serious suspects. More than a Thousand. Obviously, giving any sort of detail on this list would be far beyond the scope of this podcast. There are some notable persons of interest, however, whom I can quickly mention. One trait that it is hypothesized Cooper had is a military background. This is assumed due to his technical knowledge of the 727, the familiarity of navigating in-flight using landmarks, and his request for military-issued parachutes, and his overall plan of surviving the insane feat of parachuting out of the back of an airliner. One proposed suspect that shared this hypothetical trait was named Kenneth Christensen. In 2003, his brother, Lyle, watched a documentary on D.B. Cooper and became convinced that his brother, who had died in 1994, was the true Dan Cooper. He had served as a paratrooper immediately after World War II ended, and he worked as a mechanic and then a flight attendant for Northwest Orient Airlines. He had also supposedly bought a house with cash not long after the hijacking. This last bit was later disproven, however, along with a few other pieces of circumstantial evidence. Still, Christensen was a popular suspect for some years thanks to a book that was written on the links between himself and D.B. Cooper, as well as an episode on a History Channel TV series that linked to the two men. Some still believe that he was the real Cooper, even though he doesn't really match the physical description that was given by eyewitnesses in 1971. Another of the proposed identities for Cooper shared very little with the profile for the hijacker Beyond the physical description, Jack Coffitt is only one of many con men who have tried to claim the identity of the infamous hijacker. He was one of the first, though, beginning to claim to be Cooper in 1972. He enlisted the help of a former prison cellmate to peddle his falsified story to Hollywood. They never really had any success, but the pair deserve marks for their tenacity. Although Coffitt died in 1975, his partner in crime continued to try to sell the story for decades. There was one suspect who actually did share something rather interesting with D.B. Cooper. His name. L.D. Cooper was proposed to be the inventive criminal in 2011 by his niece, Maria Cooper. L.D. had the military background, as well as several points of circumstantial connection with D.B. Cooper. He even had an issue of the Dan Cooper comic I mentioned in the beginning of the episode. It was displayed prominently in his room. This is hardly enough to base a theory on, however, especially considering that LD's DNA did not match that which was found on the tie. Perhaps I should mention at least one possible identity that is relatively plausible? Well, I present for your consideration Robert Wesley Rackstraw. There are many who adamantly believe that this man, who died in 2019, is the real D.B. Cooper. One man, Thomas Colbert, has devoted several years of his life to the discovery and compilation of evidence to support Rackstraw as Cooper. He has a captivating book on the subject, The Master Outlaw. Colbert believes in this theory so much that he no longer claims it to be a plausible theory, but an undeniable fact. Citing his 102 pieces of evidence, he has talked about the theory on the History Channel, on podcasts, and on several news outlets. He even filed a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit against the FBI in an attempt to force them to release information on Norjack. I won't go very deeply into Colbert's evidence, but I will say that it is pretty compelling. If you'd like to learn more, I will include a link to his website, dbcooper.com, in the episode notes, as well as a link to the very informative conversation with Colbert on the podcast, Generation Y. Suffice it to say, Rackstraw has a history of criminal behavior, a list of circumstantial similarities between himself and Cooper, and even his own claim to be Cooper. Although he would later recant this claim, saying that he told everyone he was D.B. Cooper. Quote, as a stunt. If this sounds too baseless for you still, consider the FBI's favorite suspect. Richard Floyd McCoy was arrested for perpetrating a similar hijacking and attempting to escape by parachute only five months after the 1971 incident. The FBI says that he is the, quote, one suspect left on our list. This is despite the fact that he doesn't really match the physical description of D.B. Cooper. Another favored candidate for Cooper's secret identity was one Dwayne Weber. However, he too had DNA that failed to match that found on the tie. If you're noticing a trend here, you're not alone. There is very little evidence for anyone who has claimed to be D.B. Cooper. This is likely a major contribution to the fascination that pop culture has had with the hijacker. The most likely story, both in my own opinion and in the opinion of the FBI, is that Cooper didn't survive his famous jump. For one thing, he doesn't seem to have been an expert in parachuting. The FBI believes this because of his choice of parachute. You see, one of the two reserve chutes that were provided to Cooper was a dud, a prop, simply a non-functioning training tool used in the parachuting school from which the gear had been acquired. It was, in fact, sewn shut and couldn't possibly have been deployed. And that was the chute that Cooper grabbed. Any trained parachuter would have ultimately picked up this fact and taken the perfectly functional chute that was instead cut apart for its cords and left behind. In addition to this, no trained expert would have dared to jump out of a plane traveling at 175 miles an hour into 15 degree Fahrenheit wind and rain at night, with the intention of then hiking through the wilderness wearing loafers and a suit. I believe that the special agent in charge of the investigation into Cooper's identity until the case was officially closed in 2016, Special Agent Larry Carr, proposed the most believable story yet. He speculates that Cooper opened the aft stairs and was unable to tell that the wind he was about to jump into was moving at nearly 200 miles an hour. This was because he was jumping from the back of the plane. Once he did take that fateful leap, he began to tumble wildly. In the chaos of being tossed this way and that, and in the extreme cold for which Cooper was wholly unprepared, he failed to deploy his parachute and was dashed to pieces on the ground, 10,000 feet below. No body has ever been discovered simply because Cooper jumped out of the plane over the middle of nowhere. I really can't blame anyone for being fascinated with this story, with the possibility that Cooper got away with this daring stunt. There's so much to be said for a mystery that has little or no chance of ever being solved. To me, however, the most underwhelming answer is really the most likely. D.B. Cooper's bones are probably scattered across the forest near Lake Merlin, Washington, and his bundle of cash has long since rotted away. The enduring legacy of his crimes, however, are just as fascinating to me as the mystery of his identity. The impact he had on air travel in America and on the way our culture views renegades and criminals is perhaps enough to elevate D.B. Cooper to legendary status. Anyone familiar with the events of November 24, 1971 will surely always be moved to some strong emotion, whether envy, anger, disdain, or even awe, at the now iconic image of a man clad in a black business suit and wearing a parachute while clutching a briefcase bomb and a bundle of cash staring out of the back of an airliner. This moment will be burned into our collective consciousness for years to come as the faithful moment before the jump. (laughs) Produced, researched, and narrated by me, Aaron Bradford. This show is my effort to bring you, our listeners, a little more understanding to some of our world's most perplexing mysteries, even if a perfectly complete explanation of these enigmas are simply beyond reach. I truly hope that you will be able to draw your own conclusion on these topics and perhaps even approach the unknown in a totally new way. By doing so, together we can find a way to explain the perplexing, demystify the obscure, and elucidate the inscrutable, even if it is with imperfect clarity. A special thanks to Crystal for having my back on this endeavor, and for helping me make this crazy idea into a real show for all of you out there in podcast land to enjoy. If you want to know more about the different theories that try to explain what happened to D.B. Cooper and who he may have been, there is a wealth of information to be found at dbcooper.com, citizensleuths.com, and archives.fbi.gov. And, of course, a very special thanks to you, the listener. Without you, we wouldn't have a show, Please subscribe and review wherever you are listening to this. As always, if you have any questions or comments regarding this episode or any other episode of Imperfect Clarity, please do not hesitate to contact me. Look up the show on Facebook or email me at imperfectclaritypodcast at gmail.com or visit our website at imperfectclaritypodcast.com. Until next time, keep contemplating the confounding. Maybe you'll gain a little bit more understanding. Even imperfect clarity is always better.